Let's open Scripture this afternoon to the letter of Paul to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. This reading is in connection with what we confess in the Belgic Confession, Article 19, about Christ, the Son of God, having two natures. So Philippians 2, beginning at verse 1, the inspired apostle writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men." And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I invite you to turn with me in the Book of Praise to page 506, where we find the church's confession about the two natures in the one person of Christ in Belgic Confession, Article 19. And that'll be the focus of the preaching this afternoon. We believe that by this conception, the person of the Son of God is inseparably united and joined with the human nature, so that there are not two sons of God, nor two persons, but two natures united in one single person. Each nature retains its own distinct properties. His divine nature has always remained uncreated, without beginning of days or end of life, filling heaven and earth. His human nature has not lost its properties. It has beginning of days and remains created. It is finite and retains all the properties of a true body. Even though, by His resurrection, He has given immortality to His human nature, He has not changed its reality. Since our salvation and resurrection also depend on the reality of his body. However, these two natures are so closely united in one person that they were not even separated by his death. Therefore, what he, when dying, committed into the hands of his father was a real human spirit that departed from his body. Meanwhile, his divinity always remained united with his human nature, even when he was lying in the grave. And the divine nature always remained in him, just as it was in him when he was a little child, 
even though it did not manifest itself as such for a little while. For this reason, we profess him to be true God and true man, true God in order to conquer death by his power and true man that he might die for us according to the infirmity of his flesh. So far, our confession. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, why do we have Article 19 in our confession? As we just read it, we can see that it's all about the Son of God taking on Himself human nature, while at the same time remaining God. And if you think about what we've already confessed in this Belgic Confession, it seems to be repetitive. If you go back to Article 10, you find that we confess clearly and specifically that Jesus Christ is true and eternal God. And last time in Article 18, we saw in no uncertain terms that the Son of God comes down to earth and becomes incarnate by taking upon Himself a true, a real human nature with all of its infirmities, we saw. So, by the end of Article 18, we are very clear already that Jesus Christ is both God and human. Do we really need an Article 19? Do we need a separate article to spell this out in more detail? Well, it turns out that we do because there were some in the days of Guido de Bray and their followers remain with us today who hold to a very peculiar, at least to our ears, a peculiar error on this point. And the error is not minor, and it's not merely theoretical, for in the end this error impacts our salvation. We humans need a Savior who can truly save us. Us descendants of Adam from death. And the only Savior who can do that is the one that God has provided, the one who is both fully God and fully a descendant of Adam. So I bring you this word of God. Our Savior's two natures serve to save us from death. We'll see that He has a nature to taste death and a nature to conquer death. So this error that I am referring to that led to the need for Article 19 is actually mentioned at the end of Article 18. I just want to quote there for a few moments the second full paragraph of Article 18. Contrary to the heresy of the Anabaptists who deny that Christ assumed human flesh of his mother, we therefore confess that Christ partook of the flesh and blood of the children. That's the error, and as you know, I think you know, one of the reasons the church uh, set out to write confessions at different points in history is to defend the truth of Scripture over against these errors or heresies that have cropped up in the course of time. And the heresy here is that Jesus did not take on human nature from His mother. That was the, that was the error. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, if you knew that the Anabaptists teach this. I think we are more familiar with their other error, 
the error we call believer's baptism. And we'll come to address that in Article 34, the Lord willing. But this teaching about the source of Jesus' humanity may catch us off guard. It's not one of those popular teachings that is, is, is really cast around. And we wonder if Jesus did not get his human nature from his mother Mary, well, where did it come from? The Anabaptists, and that would be then the Mennonites and the Hutterites and the Amish, those are all descendants of the Anabaptists, they confessed that Jesus was a man, that he was human. He had a human nature, only they say it didn't come from his mom. And why would they insist on this? It's actually the Dutchman Menno Simons, who was the most prolific teacher on this point. Why then are the Mennonites so concerned about where Christ's humanity comes from? And we might ask a little different question, really, what's the difference anyway? Is this really such a big deal where Jesus gets his humanity from? Is it really on the level of a heresy? Well, if you ask the Anabaptists and ask Menno Simons, he would say it certainly is a big deal. Their underlying conviction, the Anabaptist conviction, is that in this world there is nothing that is untainted by sin. Their conviction goes deeper. Since the fall into sin, the, the whole of creation, everything in the created order, and they simply refer to that by the word nature, everything in nature is corrupted to the point where it is all now inherently evil. So everything on earth, everything in the cosmos is evil. That's the animal kingdom. It's the earth itself. It's also then for humanity. It's just everything under heaven is evil. All that is outside of the place where God dwells is evil, and, and this is now where it pinches. They say it cannot be redeemed. It has to be destroyed. So everything about this world and in this world, it's evil to the point where it has to be destroyed. God will certainly save the souls of believers because souls were created and given by God, but their flesh and the world and everything in the world will one day be burned and consumed, and believers then will go on to live forever in a heavenly existence. So this is their, their mindset, the Anabaptist mindset. They look upon everything on earth as, as worthless, but what is in heaven and what comes from heaven, so God's Word, God's grace, God's spiritual blessings, those are to be cherished in value. Down here, you just tolerate, but you wait for what comes from heaven. That's why you see Anabaptist groups like the Hutterites and the Amish living off by themselves in clusters. You have that down in Pennsylvania. You have it on the prairies. If you've traveled through Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, the Hutterites there, they live in these communes. They want to have as little impact, uh, they want the world to have as little impact on them as possible and them on the world because to them the world is nothing but evil. 
They are in the world, but not of the world, so they separate from the world. The world is unsavable. That's why you have old order Mennonites in Kitchener-Waterloo running their self-sufficient farms, driving a horse and buggy, and using as little of the world's technology as possible. Why? Because they want to keep themselves away from the taint of this world, this evil world, this perishing world. That's also why the Mennonites historically have distanced themselves from governments. They don't like governments. They don't want to be interfered with. They don't want to participate in the government because government is evil. It belongs to the, the realm or the kingdom of Satan. So the Anabaptists have this mindset where all earthly things are sinful, can't be redeemed, and the best we can do is keep away from those things as much as possible. We're going to retreat to our communes, to our colonies. And now you can see why they were so bothered and objected to the idea of the Son of God taking upon Himself human nature from Mother Mary. Because Mary's flesh, like all of us, is of this evil earth below. And if the Son of God took upon Himself this irredeemable evil flesh, then the Son of God would Himself become tainted with evil, and that could never be. And so Menno Simons and others taught that Mary served, Mother Mary served as really nothing but an incubator. An incubator, you know, it, it holds and sustains life inside of it, but the incubator does not contribute to the life that it sustains. So the Son of God, they say, made use of Mary's womb to be born a baby, but all he did was, was pass through Mary without her adding anything to his humanity. They theorize that the Holy Spirit made a brand new human flesh inside the womb of Mary. Some Mennonites even said that the Son of God took with him untainted human flesh from heaven, but whatever the case, it couldn't be human flesh from Mary because that was tainted with evil. The Son of God could not take on, they say, earthly flesh from a descendant of Adam, a descendant of Abraham, because then he would be sinful like them. So when you ask, well, what then is Jesus Christ to the Anabaptists? Like, how would they describe him? It comes down to this. He is a blend of God and man. He's a blend of human and divine. He has a human nature that is, and this is the important point. It's different from our own. It's a created, a newly created human nature. So, brothers and sisters, this is indeed a very serious matter for at least a couple of reasons. If the Son of God is to be our Savior, He has to take upon Himself our flesh, not the flesh of a sinless replica or the flesh that comes from heaven in some mysterious fashion, but he has to take upon himself the flesh that is bone of our bones, the blood and the cells that come originally from Adam, just like our flesh. If our flesh is to be redeemed, 
If our flesh is to be raised in the resurrection, as Scripture promises, then our flesh has to suffer the consequences for our sin. So the Savior had to be made one of us. The Son of God had to become one with us. He couldn't just be like us. He had to take on the the nature, the human nature of His mother. That was a must. And the other reason is that if Jesus is some new being, a blend of God and man, neither fully God nor fully man, how could He serve as our substitute? Only a human, only a true son of Adam could pay for the sins of the children of Adam. A person who is human but from a different source has no connection with Adam. That individual would be something other, a new being. And justice, God's justice demands that the the one who committed the sin has to pay for that sin. So some kind of a new creature, a blended God-man whose human nature comes from someplace else could never be punished by God for the sins of a different kind of human nature. Well, over against all of this theorizing about a heavenly human flesh, the Bible speaks very simply and plainly that Mary was Jesus' mother in the same way that your mother is your mother. That any mother is the mother of a child. All those quotations at the end of Article 18, and there's a number there, I won't quote them, they give proof that Jesus took on His flesh and blood from Abraham's children, that he was a true descendant of David, that he was born of the tribe of Judah. Let's see it for ourselves in our reading of Philippians 2, verse 6, where Paul describes Christ Jesus this way, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So, Paul in Philippians 2 teaches very clearly that the person of Christ existed prior to creation, or or prior to His birth, rather. He existed as God in heaven. He is the Son of God in heaven. He has existed there from eternity. And so, he could, from that vantage point, you could say, consider things and make decisions before coming down to earth. And at a certain point, this divine person in consultation with the Father and the Spirit made a conscious decision to lower himself, to make himself as nothing. He did that by doing something unheard of, by taking on the very nature of a servant, the very nature of a human being says Paul, only there was no sin in that nature. Now, last time we saw that the Holy Spirit was involved in this, in the Spirit's incomprehensible work. He made sure that Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary and took upon Himself human nature from her, but the Holy Spirit made sure He did not inherit the sin, the original sin of Adam. And you recall that Joseph, 
Mary's husband, was not involved at all, as would normally be the case. It was the Holy Spirit doing something unique in the womb of Mary. The Holy Spirit made sure that Jesus received Mary's nature, but not Mary's sin. That's why the church distinguishes between the person of Christ and, on the other hand, the two natures of Christ, the divine and the human nature. Now, I realize this is kind of headsy, maybe a little abstract, and on a Sunday afternoon, a little bit hard maybe to sink our mental teeth into it, but yet all of this is quite important. Consider the difference between the concept of person and the concept of nature. Each one of us sitting here is a, an individual person. You, as a person, are unique. There's no one like you. You are yourself. Your identity is your person. Only you can be you. But yet, every person here has something in common, and that is our nature. Every person here is a human being. We all share in the nature of being human. We all share in the human race descended from Adam and Eve. Even though we are so many individual persons with no two alike, yet we all have the one and the same nature. A nature can be shared, a person cannot be shared. You are you, and nobody can be you. That's how we need to think of Christ. He is and always has been a person, namely the Son of God. As a person, as an individual member of the Trinity, the Son of God has always had a divine nature which he shares with the Father and the Spirit. The holy person of the Son of God has existed from all eternity. So, he had no part in Adam's sin at all. When the person of the Son of God came down to earth and added to himself a true human nature, at that moment he gained a share in Adam's nature, human nature, but not in Adam's sin. One person, two natures, that is the mystery and the glory of the incarnation. That's what our confession wants to stress. Article 18 speaks about a real human nature and not, as Menno Simons taught, a new human nature. Article 19 specifies it further. We believe that by this conception, the person of the Son of God is inseparably united and joined with the human nature, so that there are not two sons of God, nor two persons, but two natures in the one single person. It's this miracle, and it, it, it is a miracle, and it's not fathomable to our minds, but it's this miracle that makes our Savior 100% God and 100% man, true God and true man, a special act of God's grace, a man who's complete with a human soul and never having given up an 
ounce of his divine nature. And why? Why is this such a big deal? Why did our Savior, why did the triune God make it happen in this way? Why did the Son of God take upon himself true human nature from his mother so that he could be in the position to taste death for us? For us who share that very same nature that he took on. Article 19 draws our attention to the death and resurrection of Christ. At the very end, we confess that He is true man, that He might die for us according to the infirmity of the flesh. Christ is not a copycat human from heaven, for then He would have died for a different brand of human nature. Nor is Jesus a, a divine human meld of some kind, but He's a fully divine person, Son of God, and He took upon Himself a complete, the complete human nature, Son of Man, the same nature that you and I have. And in that nature, He carried something for us. What did He carry? All of His life long, Isaiah 53, He carried our sorrows. He carried our troubles. He bore our infirmities. He carried our human nature, the weight of all of our sins. He carried it all the way to the cross, and He let our human nature be crucified as full payment for our sins. It was our human nature there. When Jesus was on the cross, we were on the cross legally, as he was our representative and fully in our mediator. We were there with him. This is how it works. This is how salvation can get transferred to us. It applies to our resurrection the same way. Article 19 mentions the resurrection at the end. Even though by his resurrection he has given immortality to his human nature, he has not changed its reality since our salvation and resurrection also depend on the reality of the body. And that's the key. Our salvation depends on the reality that Jesus has a human nature with a true human body. Our rising from the dead on the last day depends on the fact that Jesus bore our human nature, not some other human nature that Jesus went into the grave as one of us and came out of the grave as one of us, not as some other representative or a representative of some other human brand. He even told His doubting disciples after He rose from the dead, look at my hands, look at my feet, touch me, it is I myself, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. I am human. I am son of Adam. Our Savior was real, a real flesh and blood. He still is a real flesh and blood, genuine son of Adam, yet without the sin of Adam. That allowed him, and he went through with it, to taste death in our place. But now something else happens too. As son of his Father, as the Son of God, he also could, and he did, 
conquer death for us. The person of the Son of God, when he took on human nature, he never lost anything of his divine nature. He, he remained divine in every respect. He is equally divine with the Father and with the Spirit. The person of God's Son has a, a, a divine nature to which he added a human nature, but he never lost any of his divine qualities. That means that the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've been seeing that in the John sermons, he is fully God. He's not at all inferior to the Father or the Spirit. Article 10 confessed that in some detail, so we won't go into those details again. But as fully God, and this is the difference it makes, Jesus as fully God was able to do things for His human nature and for our human nature, which no mere human could do, not even a sinless human could do. So consider the Lord Jesus in His earthly ministry. Having that divine nature enabled Him to do things impossible for a mere mortal. His divine nature enabled His human nature to go out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights and not eat or drink. To survive. To be tempted by Satan and not fall. No, no human can do that on his own. Filled fully with the Spirit of God at His baptism, Jesus could face also the opposition and the trickery of the Pharisees when a mere human would be caught up in their schemes and tripped over by their questions. No mere human could walk on the stormy sea of Galilee to reach His disciples. A mere human would have become exasperated with those disciples to the point of giving up because those disciples were so dull and so hard, they felt so hard to believe in Jesus. But the divine nature enabled Jesus to remain patient with them. And don't we see this divine nature at work even more clearly in Christ's final hours on, of His suffering? There in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, with, with His human emotions really coming out, the human thoughts, the feelings, the nature of our Savior, it recoiled at the horrible prospect He was facing. The prospect of brutal suffering under God's curse against sin. There was the, what the humans would do to Him, the rejection and the whipping and the beatings and the crown of thorns and the crucifixion, that was awful. But there was the prospect of what the Father would do to him, reject him and cause him to experience wrath untold as he hung on the cross, particularly in those three hours of darkness, as he thought about what was coming and he knew what was coming, he became agitated in his spirit. And he asked the Father, Father, if this cup can pass from me, then let it pass. But then he added, this is his divine nature. Yet not what I will, but your will be done. The human nature inside of Jesus was weak and frail, but the divine nature inside of Jesus held him up 
and kept him loyal to the Father, even to the point of death, even to the point of all that agony on the cross, that, that wrath of God on the cross. Only someone who was God himself could carry the load that far, even into the grave, without ever sinning, without ever cracking under the pressure. And when the human nature of Jesus was dead, when his body lay in the grave unmoving and his spirit had departed for heaven, remember that he said to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. So the spirit went to be with the Father. He was dead. Was it game over for the Savior? No, it was not. Because his divine nature remained with his body there in the grave as well as with his spirit up in heaven and his divine nature on the third day brought the human nature back to life rejoining spirit and body in that glorious resurrection we all know about it's by the power of his divine nature that christ triumphed over death and he did it for us because He is one of us. He's a son of Adam. He's our fully human substitute. And it's by the power of that same divine nature that Christ extends His victory to the elect, to His people, also to us. Working faith in our hearts and uniting us to Him in eternal life. I mean, how do you get faith in your heart? How do I get faith? How do we remain faithful? It's only by the working of the divine nature of the Son of God. And the Holy Spirit plays a role in that too, of course. The more you think about Jesus and just think about who He is, the more stunning a Savior you find. The more you ponder what God has done for us in Christ, and, and continues to do for us still today, the more steady you and I become on our feet. Because what the Son of God did is, is very real. It's not airy-fairy. It's not out there. It's very earthy. Jesus is a man of the earth, same as you and me. And He is God from heaven, unlike you and me. If He has secured my salvation in this miraculous way, if He possesses our flesh, my flesh, my nature in heaven, even as we speak, if all of that's true, and it is, then who's going to stop us? Who's going to keep us from going to Him when we die? Who's going to stop us from being raised from the dead as He was raised from the dead? My Savior is my human brother, offspring of Adam. My Savior is also my awesome God, the Son of God. Eternal life for you is what that means. And eternal life for me is guaranteed because of Christ. One person to 
natures. Amen.